It was just past noon. After a remarkable show of masculine strength and valor, a refugee from Canaan known as the Usurper headed off for the local's daughter. The servant ran ahead of the freshly minted couple and informed her father back home, but we get to watch the best part. As you can hear, there's quite a commotion behind the door. Inside, we'll see the girl's father somewhat confused, but a little excited by the news. Life is suddenly out of sync for him. Wait a minute. A younger daughter can't marry before the older daughter, he mutters. But he is my wealthy sister's son. I could get something out of him. The father scurries around looking for his hat, quietly singing the word opportunity over and over again as his wife tries to find his coat and put something on the stove. They're right outside, sir says one of the servants. Father still can't find the hat, so he licks his finger, pats down his hair, and reminds himself to erase his silly smile and put on his best serious face. I am to be feared, he reminds his face. Here's the moment. Watch the door. The middle-aged man opens the door with calm and grandeur and looks toward the road with a cool, undisturbed gaze. After a few minutes of pretense, the calm persona falls to pieces and he takes off running toward the couple. The refugee holds out his hand for a handshake, but the girl belatedly warns her friend, Dad's a hugger, but it's too late. Still at full speed, her father ignores the outstretched hand, takes up the stranger in a rapturous embrace, and kisses him on the cheek. And he's a kisser, she adds. Dad, this is Usurper. Usurper, this is my dad. Usurper? Interesting name. How did you get it? What brings you to our country? I understand your mother is my sister. It's been a long time since I've seen her. How is she? She's well, says the visitor. I need to tell you my whole story. It will answer all your questions. The visitor tells a story of deceit, of how he took advantage of his brother and tricked his own invalid father and how his mother helped him do it all. Then he tells of one recent night as he was seeking refuge, the starlit sky opened and he saw angels walking up and down a hidden staircase. The girl's father listens intently. With each twist in the plot, with each elaborate web of deception successfully deployed, the father draws an inch closer and smiles a little more. Soon the girl's father signals that he's heard enough. He is satisfied. He recognizes in Usurper a familiar soul, a familiar fellow schemer. The father puts both his hands on both of the visitor's shoulders and shakes them and says with the greatest excitement, Surely thou art my bone and my flesh. And we'll hear more about that story right after this. Welcome to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, brought to you by Word of Flame Curriculum and the Pentecostal Publishing House. This podcast encourages adult disciples to think deeply about God's Word, further develop their personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and make a greater commitment to the purpose and plan of God for their lives. Let's dive into today's lesson and explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. Good day unto you, God's Word for Life listeners. I'm so glad you're with me. My name is LJ Harry. I am your host, and you are listening to the God's Word for Life Companion Podcast. And today's episode stems from a lesson that was dated October 2nd, 2022, entitled A House Divided. It's a brand new series we're going into. This title and topic stems from the book of Mark, chapter 3, verse 35. Jesus said, For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now we just heard a snapshot from the story of Jacob, Rachel, and Laban near the roots of God's human family, Israel. 
Members of a family, they share certain traits. Some of the traits are transmitted physically. Some traits are learned. Our physical traits often betray our family identity. Somebody may associate us with a certain family member merely by looking at us or hearing us talk. But learned traits, well, they can be equally telling. Honesty or dishonesty can easily identify us with our family. Scripture frequently enumerates God's traits. He is holy. He is faithful. He is merciful. He is truthful and so on. Likewise, God's children are holy, faithful, merciful, truthful, among other things. Jesus once said that children of God will be recognized and identified by the way they make peace, Matthew 5, verse 9. The sons of God, Paul wrote, are distinguished by the fact that they're led by the Spirit. Just as a boy begins to manifest his father's traits in time, those who are born of God increasingly take on the characteristics of our Father, our God, as we mature. Although God's family was founded on Jacob as the forefather, thank God we're allowed to be part of the family as we obey God. In our day, we're not excluded because we can't trace our lineage back to one of the tribes of Israel. We are included through obedience. We might say that obedience is the DNA of the kingdom of God, the mechanism by which we grow to resemble God. In Genesis 3, the serpent promised Eve divinity through disobedience. Jesus Christ, however, was exalted to lordship through obedience. We read that in Philippians 2 verse 9. And we are elevated by God by obedience as well. Here's a question. In addition to obedience, what other traits do we see in the family of God? Mark's gospel frequently nests stories of Jesus within other stories. Mark chapter 3 provides one of the gospel's earlier examples of this nesting technique. In verse 20, we see Jesus inside a house teaching his followers why his mother and brothers were outside worried that the family's eldest son had lost his ever-loving mind. And in verse 21, they literally complained that Jesus was beside himself, which to this day is a claim that somebody has said goodbye to reason and good old-fashioned common sense. What we have here is apparently a division between the earthly household of Jesus the Messiah. Jesus was in a house, and yet he was thought to be outside his mind. But in truth, his earthly household was physically outside, and they were really outsiders to Jesus' divine mission. As we follow Mark's pattern of storytelling, the second story is about a division within a household. The scribes accused Jesus of casting out devils by the power of Beelzebub, Satan. And Jesus responded by saying, What? A house divided against itself cannot stand? If Satan was casting out his wicked allies, his household has fallen, his power is at an end. He wouldn't do that. Jesus' reply exposed the trouble with their charge. If Satan was giving Jesus the power to bind devils, well, Satan's kingdom was being destroyed from inside out, and Jesus was the agent of all that destruction. But if Jesus was not using satanic power to cast out devils, Jesus must have been binding them by a power higher than Satan's, greater than Satan's, whose kingdom was being destroyed from the outside. If Jesus was casting out devils by a higher power, that power was the Holy Ghost. And if the Holy Ghost was casting out demons, the ruler of the house of demons had been tied up and his house had been plundered. Either way, the rule of kingdom Satan was over. Jesus' rebuttal also exposed their blasphemy. And herein lies the reason for Jesus' very stern warning that he gave for all time. 
If the scribes accused Jesus of casting out devils by the Spirit of God, they were attributing to God himself the work of Satan. In their minds, the God of Israel had become the devil to their plans, and Jesus called this blasphemy an unforgivable sin. Jesus manifested what was in men's hearts. The manifestation of God in Christ revealed a long-standing hatred for God harbored in the hearts of men, and the scribes' false charge of Jesus merely confirmed what they thought about God all along. Fallen humanity is at war with God. When the scribes saw evidence of the Spirit's work, they knowingly and willfully sought to kill it. And in the end, they would push God off the edge of the world he made and onto the cross, the Son of Man, orphaned from the human race. Here's another question. Maybe you've asked this question before in your own heart. Why did they hate him so much? Why did the scribes and the others, especially the religious, hate Jesus so much? After Jesus' remarks, Mark's narrative shifts back to the story that began the episode. Jesus' followers inside the house told him that his family wanted to meet him outside. And he gestured to the people listening to him and said that his mother and his brothers were those who obey the will of God. If Jesus was casting out devils, his exorcisms were example that Satan's house was being plundered as he sat helplessly by, bound and gagged. Jesus was claiming as his people those who were once members of the devil's household. And when we read Mark's gospel, we're invited to remember Jesus has already had an encounter with the devil. And Jesus defeated the devil soundly in the wilderness. His first words, which are the first words in Mark's gospel, were, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent ye and believe the gospel, Mark 1 verse 15. Then Jesus went to Capernaum where he called his first disciples. He cast demons out of a demoniac. He entered the house of Simon and Andrew. As Jesus was beginning his ministry, Herod bound and imprisoned John the Baptist. It was a busy time for everybody. And Jesus immediately began preaching John's message and casting out devils as evidence that he was binding the strong man. And all of that supernatural activity at Capernaum carried some long-term consequences. People began lauding Jesus as the one who taught authority, not like the scribes. They just repeated everybody else, but Jesus taught with authority. Then the next time the scribes encountered Jesus, they were ready with a slander, even more vicious than the first. The scribes couldn't deny that Jesus did teach with more authority, so they attempted to credit his authority to Satan. Their slander was an unwitting admission that they themselves were powerless when the devil had laid his claim. And in attributing Jesus' power to Satan, these political and religious leaders of Israel admitted they were powerless against their enemy. Jesus' victory over Satan was a cosmic reversal. It was an undoing of Adam's fatal act of disobedience. Throughout this temptation time, Jesus defined whoever does the will of God as a member of God's family. It was interesting, but not a coincidence. Jesus didn't call any disciples before his wilderness temptation, but he called Peter, James, John, and Andrew immediately afterward. The basis of his holy family is obedience. First, obedience to follow God and then his disciples' obedience to follow him. We too embrace our calling as sons and daughters of God, following him and being free from anything that would try to bind us. Third question, how does Jesus' victory over temptation give us power over temptation? Well, let's keep walking through Mark chapter 3, shall we? Mark chapter 3 names Jesus' 12 disciples he appointed to preach the gospel. When God began his mission of redemption, he appointed 12 men from the family of Abraham and gave their descendants a law to obey. 
And likewise, by appointing 12 men to accompany him and preach the gospel, Jesus made a clear statement that he too was establishing a family whose father is God and whose purpose is to redeem the world. The 12 disciples stood with Jesus while the leaders of Judea accused him of heinous crimes, while devils confronted him, even while Jesus' earthly family verbally abused him, even attempting to apprehend him because they viewed him as beside himself, out of his mind, crazy, lost touch with reality. Here's another question. Can you think of a time when following Jesus caused you to be outside? Could be outside of a ring of friends or circle of influence. Could be outside of a job because of your faith. Could be outside of your own family because of your faith. Can you think of a time when following Jesus pushed you outside? Jesus and his new family of disciples, they appeared to be greatly outnumbered, but Jesus didn't seem to mind. Following Jesus often calls us to join the one others view as beside himself. Following Jesus and being part of his family doesn't always make sense to others who watch our lives. To join him in his house is to go outside, to leave behind the safety and the normality of our social life and follow Jesus. But that's often the call of God to us. He doesn't call us to understand it or even agree with it, just to follow. We talked about traits a little bit ago. A biological family, they share some certain unique fundamental traits. They're generated by genes. It's genetic. A man's telltale head, jawline, or vocal timbre will often show up in his son. And yet, as we learned earlier, other traits are learned, like a father's mannerisms, the way he conveys irritation, clears his throat, sways his shoulders when he walks. During the son's formative years, he unconsciously assimilates some of these subtleties from his father and mirrors them until they become his own. But these two are family traits and they're signs of paternity. Think about Jesus. What family traits did the Son of God inherit from his own father? Jesus is God's true son. The fundamental similarity between Jesus and the father was so striking that Jesus' words were only those the father had spoken. His actions were only those of the father. When you saw Jesus, you had seen the father, which is why Jesus responded to Philip when Philip says, come on, Jesus, you keep talking about the father, 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 just show us the father, we'll be happy. And Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the father. Jesus is the express image of the father's person. Jesus taught that he came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me, John 6, verse 38. God's son bears the family traits, and that's true of all God's sons and daughters. We're not called to be the incarnation of God Almighty like Jesus was, but we are called to be his sons and daughters as we are born again into his family. Last question. Which of God's traits do you wish you displayed most or more in your life? This wonderful gift of being born again into the family of God was not just for those in the Bible. We also can be members of God's family. Jesus taught obedience to the will of God is the basis for being part of God's family. The will of God is the midwife, as it were, the catalyst of our birth into the family. The call to obedience is simultaneous with our new birth, beginning with a call to repentance and water baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God completes the birthing process and we emerge from the world as an infant emerges from the womb, crying, Abba, Father, our first cries, announcing our new father. After this new birth, the child of God is no more finished growing into the characteristics of our Heavenly Father than newborn babies are done being raised and trained by their mother and father. New children of God begin to take on a new nature, but they need time spent observing their Heavenly Father through the life of Jesus Christ, learning from Him, 
practicing his characteristics, his holiness, and obeying his commandments. And in time, this newly born again Son of God will be conformed to the image of God's true Son, Jesus Christ. Okay, we wrap this up. Obedience to the will of God is a lifelong occupation. Our kinship to Jesus is often revealed in the way we face adversity, even the way we face death. One man in particular emulated or followed Jesus so closely that he died like Jesus died. We know him. He is Simon Peter. Jesus told Peter that following him would mean Peter would be carried where he did not want to go, and there he would stretch forth his hands when he was old. Peter instinctively knew this meant he would be crucified for following his Lord. Peter objected. But one day, later in life, Peter did indeed come to that promised cross road. Like the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, Peter, who was asked to feed Jesus' sheep, laid down his life in an act of ultimate obedience. He was indeed carried where he did not want to go, to a cross, and his persecutors stretched forth his hands. And by his crucifixion, Peter glorified the Lord. He then possessed the most unmistakable trait of the family of Jesus. Peter joined the one who was beside himself, outside the camp, pushed off the edge of the world and onto the cross. And in the end, Peter did look quite a bit like his father. Would you join me in praying, first of all, for us to be bold and unashamed to live for Jesus, and then secondly, to help others to be born again into his wonderful family. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the privilege we have to call you Father. Thank you for being willingly, being our Father. I I ask you today, Jesus, help us to be bold in living for you, not ashamed, not afraid, not embarrassed, but help us to be bold in our faith. God, thank you for allowing us to be born of your Spirit, to be born of water. In the name of Jesus, I do pray also help us to help others to be born again into your wonderful family. This is a gift too great to keep to ourselves, so I pray help us to share it with others, help us to share the gospel, help us to minister to them, and help us to help them to take those steps to be born again into your family. I ask you this in the lovely name of Jesus, our Father. Amen. Thanks so much, God's Word for Life listeners. Hope this episode has been a blessing to you. Be sure to click subscribe or share or like or follow or the bell button or whatever button causes you to follow. And you can also share this with others and let them know about the God's Word for Life companion podcast. A couple resources you may be interested in, and they will be in the show notes. There is a handbook on the Gospels, which was written by Dr. Jeff Brickle. The link will be there in the show notes. And there is the Gospel of Mark, which was written by Sidney Poe. And that link will also be in there. If you're looking for something to continue to help you to grow and develop as you study the Gospel of Mark, which is the series we are currently on. So some great resources as well as other resources there at PentecostalPublishing.com. Hey, this week is General Conference in Orlando, Florida. And certainly we pray for those who are affected by and continue to be affected by Hurricane Ian. I'm looking forward to meeting you there in Orlando if you're heading to General Conference. And if you're there, would you please say hello to me? I'm very easy to find. I look like a real-life version of Where's Waldo? So please come up to me if this podcast is a blessing to you or if you have some suggestions on something to make this podcast better for all of us as we continue to study the Word of God and hear it through the podcast. So I would love to meet you and love to hear what you have to share. Next week... We continue our study through the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, and our 
episode is entitled Calming the Storm. And I'm looking forward to sharing that with you next week. And always look forward to learning and living out God's Word for life. Thank you for listening to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, where together we explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. If you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you are looking for other Bible study tools and resources to encourage you in your walk with God, visit us today at pentecostalpublishing.com.